Good morning, everybody. How are you? Hope all is well. So today I woke up with the intention of finding a quote because it's on my mind. So I think one of the cool uh, cool things about philosophy, especially studying it, teaching it, and I, this is really, I think this is like a purpose of, of Stoicism specifically among other schools, is you try to embed philosophy to not use dramatic language, but it's what it is, like into your soul, right? So for me, when I'm having a rough day, which you know, today I kind of am, and it's not even 6 a.m. yet, so that's interesting. Um, I think I can refer to certain philosophy. I can kind of recall certain philosophy and hopefully try to use it in my life. So before we get to the book today, which I did find a great piece from The Art of Living that I think uh, is worth sharing for sure and is helpful for me this morning, I woke up thinking about some ideas from Seneca, another Stoic philosopher, about imagination. I think this is him, actually, pretty sure. Um, but I know the quote for sure. The quote is, we suffer more often in imagination than in reality. And I think that's a really powerful quote. And it's one I've taught a lot and one that has really uh, resonated with me and stayed with me. Because I have a tendency, this is a word I'm using from my study of logic-based therapy, um, which is a really interesting sort of, it's sort of like cognitive-based therapy. I read a few books on it. I'm actually a certified, what they call in that world, philosophical consultant. And I've worked with some clients, which has been cool. So um, I'm really appreciative for that. The work is uh, by Dr. Elliot Cohen. It's a lot of really interesting books and, uh, and ideas from him. That being said, the word I'm going to use is from that sort of uh, philosophy or therapy, or that's really both. Um, to, I have a tendency to catastrophize. And ultimately, it's like a part of that is you take what's possible, then you imagine the worst possible case. And that's where your imagination goes. And that's where you're living in your mind and your, and your, and your feelings. So I think for me to, to know that I have a tendency to catastrophize, and it's so, it can sort of feel like anxiety at times because anxiety too, you're making up an, an image of the future that is not positive, that is frightening or uncomfortable or whatever. Um, again, anxiety is a basic part of being a human. Like we all do that. I think catastrophizing too is kind of similar to anxiety. It's like reasoning to the worst possible possibility. And of course, that's irrational, right? Um, so that's all imagination, right? So I think what Seneca provides in that quote is really powerful. It's like, look, you're suffering more in imagination than in reality. Because in this moment, the thing you're thinking of isn't happening. And not only that, but the thing you're thinking might happen, and I think in a lot of cases, for me at least, probably won't happen. And this also works to how we might be imagining a past, right? So by that, I mean, maybe we're imagining a past um, and we're extrapolating the worst possible things that could have happened or the thing that did happen. We're making up a past as well, right? Because the past is also imaginary. And this could be, to an extent, I think our own past. We could be exaggerating things. We could be, when we're learning about others, we could be doing that. We could imagining what they did and it could have been not what they did at all, right? We're, so I think it, it's uh, it's something that runs through our way of seeing both the past and the future, this idea of imagination uh, from Seneca's perspective, being worse than reality and how we suffer for that, right? That's literally almost, I think it's at least one important part of how we could define anxiety. It's you suffering a future that hasn't even happened. And that in many cases, again, likely will never happen. And yet you're ruining your present moment with your, with your own imagination, right? So I think that this takes, you know, there are multiple pathways to dealing with that, right? So I think one is that one could be the realization that Seneca is offering, um, which is, look, it's all imaginary. Stop suffering. That's how I look at that quote. 
And if we could look at our past and, and think, oh, well, I have a real tendency to do this. I have a tendency to suffer more in my imagination than in my reality. Well, I think it might also likely be the case for others as it is for myself that there's a pattern there. Well, are there certain issues that I keep seem that I seem to keep returning to? Are these imaginary issues? What are the themes? What are the topics um, that I'm imagining all the suffering? Right. So for me, I think a part of what I grapple with is I imagine this is more for the future driven thinking, um, like a lack of, I'm, I think I would say I'm a perfectionist, right? So I would say if I don't see myself being perfect in, in war, at work, for example, right, that'll be some imagined suffering. Like if things go wrong, if I don't, and then that, that bar for things going wrong is like, I set a very high, high bar for myself in regards to what right looks like, right? So it creates a lot of space for failure, a lot of space for imagining the suffering that is not necessary, right? So I think a part of what might help us with this, this negative imagination of the future or the past or, or what have you, right, is one, again, Seneca saying, we have to realize that this is all imaginary. It's not real. We have to test it for realness. We have to gather evidence and we have to be more living in reality than we are in our imaginations, and we have to be careful with our imaginations and we have to confront reality, I think, effectively by living in it, by describing it, right? By embracing it, which is to say, right? Embracing the moment more, I think is one way to deal with this, to see, look, this is imaginary, getting getting better at identifying what is real, what is not real, getting better at living more like a scientist, which is to say, gathering evidence and saying, well, this theory or this imagined thing is not accurate. It's not true, right? It's not based on facts. It's not based in reality. Um, and I think also another approach to this is just generally living less in our imaginations, which is back to the idea of embracing this moment. So trying to populate our days, even with as little to start off with as like 10 minutes, we're really engaged in a task in the moment, not distracted, really single-mindedly focused on a task. So we have less time for imagination. Right. I think one one part of the way I define a good life is overall by saying I want to have a good day. Right. So a good day should involve at least a few things that feel meaningful, right? Things meaning tasks that connect to our sense of purpose or connect to some type of healthy, virtuous pleasure. Right. Like just really enjoying food, really enjoying lunch, really enjoying breakfast. Right. And focusing on it and not allowing those times to be times where you're distracted by your imagination, but instead like really paying attention to the food, really tasting it, taking your time with it. Right. One of the reasons why I think so many religions pray before food, there's a lot of reasons there. Right. But it's also for me like this is, it's this important pause to see that what we're about to do is important. It's to ground ourselves in this moment, right? By reflecting, by contemplating, by expressing gratitude, right? So trying to maybe even lead a life more characterized by those things, right? To ground ourselves in the moment more. If we ground ourselves in the moment, as I'm saying, right, we'll imagine less. We'll just have less time for it. So if you're someone who has an unhealthy imagination, or let's say, I mean, we all at times do, right? But if you're dealing with that at present, Maybe we could try today, you know, let's take a moment. What can I do today that I could really immerse myself in so I don't spend the next, you know, roughly, let's say, 14 hours or whatever. No, you'd be sleeping a lot if that was, you know, no one sleeps 10 hours. But, you know, whatever, 16 hours, 18 hours, I'm awake. How do I spend that time such that I at least decrease the frequency 
and the intensity of these negative imagination, imagination, uh, imaginary thoughts, right? My negative imagination. So that was a little bit about Seneca. I'm kind of riffing there because I woke up with that on my mind, given just what, what else was on my mind. So that was quite, that was kind of for me this one like a like a response to just some shit on my on my mind in my head that I woke up thinking and feeling. So I was reminded of Seneca, or I reminded myself of Seneca, and that has been helpful so far. And uh, this next quote, too, I think from Epictetus has been really good. And he's telling us to, quote, take a stand, right? Once you have de deliberated and determined that a course of action is wise, never discredit your judgment. So this is just the first line of a few, right? But I love this title, Take a Stand. And this is, again, something he said to his students that was written down by one of his students that we, you know, that's, that's why we have it now uh, in this, uh, in this book. So take a stand. I love that idea. And then the first line is saying, you have to eventually trust yourself. So I said earlier, you have to be willing to test theories, gather evidence that really involves trust. And a lot of that will be done by ourselves, right? Even if you have someone to talk to a friend or what have you, right. Um, that you can confide in, which I think we all need that in life, right. Someone to talk to, um, who can respond to these types of things and, and give us good advice and be, you know, uh, even just be a good listener, right? Not even necessarily give advice because sometimes you don't even want advice. Sometimes you just need to be heard. I think that's also very powerful. Um, we have to learn still to trust ourselves. So to say, once you have deliberated and determined a course of action, that means you gave it thought, right? You examined it. You didn't just randomly do it. You were thoughtful about it. Um, trust your judgment. Don't discredit it. And this is relatively simple, right? But it's not easy. And that to me is like most things in life, right? A lot of things in life are simple and difficult. They're not really complicated. Just do this, this, and that. Okay. But it's like not just the easiest thing to do, especially it's, you know, usually things are not the easiest to start at the very least. Right. So how do we maybe make a question out of this? How can we take a stand in our own lives? Right. Let's say towards our own well-being in any way, right. Mind, body, and or soul, or even financial or social, right. How do we take a stand? So we could maybe also switch that question around. Like, well, where am I currently not taking a stand in my own, let's say, thinking? Right? So he tells us, just to elaborate a little bit, continue. Stand squarely behind your decision. Chances are there, I'm sorry, chances are there may indeed be people who misunderstand your intentions and who may even condemn you. But if, according to your best judgment, you are acting rightly, you have nothing to fear. Take a stand. Don't be cravenly non-committal. So once again, that last line, I think, once we learn to trust ourselves, once we learn to acknowledge and see where we might need to take a stand, we have to commit to it. So what would that commitment look like? Right? I think it's a very interesting conversation. So you have to maybe also acknowledge our commitments in life already and understand this is a little bit from Jean-Paul Sartre, or let's say I'm using this a little bit as inspiration here, his piece, Existentialism as a Humanism, you're already doing this, as am I. We're all, we all, for Jean-Paul Sartre, are already doing this. Whatever choice we make is a commitment. We're committing to shape and form ourselves. And then for Sartre especially, and we can understand this in many ways and we can disagree with it or agree with it, um, once we are committing, we are fully responsible for that commitment. We are fully responsible for our choices as individuals. Right. So even if you replace the word fully with mostly or partially, we're still at least, let's for argument's sake, say involved in some way. Right. So Sartre would say we're totally responsible. I think the word totally is too strong. It's my personal disagreement with him, among a couple others. Um, 
but nonetheless, I think it creates an interesting conversation in our minds around commitment, around choice, around taking a stand. Because ultimately, I think it's inarguable that to take a stand, you have to be making a choice. I'm going to stand on the side of my own joy today. Well, if I know this and that doesn't make me joyful, how do I take a stand against those actions, those choices, those lines of thinking, those ways of feeling? What's the most effective way for me to do that? Well, no matter what, when even asking that question, you're kind of implying I'm at least going to try to commit to it. Right? If, you're, if you're answering it and asking it honestly. Because you're not just asking it for no reason. You're not asking it just to understand the problem. You're also asking it to then create a relationship to the problem. Which even in creating your perception of the problem, you're doing that. In describing it, you're relating to it. So are you going to take a stand or are you going to, let's say, acquiesce and succumb and give in to these emotions and these feelings that you know, for example, aren't your best self? Or let's even say a smaller idea, right? You know these ideas aren't either true or they're not as important as you're allowing them to be. So even if they are true, like they're not an important truth, and yet you might treat them like they are important truths or an important truth. Um, I think Epictetus makes that distinction with the idea, I think he uses the phrase petty truths. Like we have to learn how to distinguish petty or small truths from large important truths or else we're going to be tortured. If you don't know how to distinguish between true and false and then distinguish between big true, little true, right? Um, you're going to be stressed. You're going to be leading a life, you know, almost say we could for a moment even say like you're going to be misleading a life. So a part of doing that is learning how to ask ourselves questions, ask questions of the world that create reliable senses of truth and then describe that truth. And then a lot of it, I think, revolves around taking a stand and making a commitment. So the idea, let's say, of having a negative imagination really connects to that, right? We have to make commitments to have healthier imaginations. We have to take a stand against the um, imaginary things, again, maybe the anxieties, let's say, that torture us such that, you know, at the very least, we can learn to maybe accept them and not um, let them, you know, I think as the Stoics would say, not get carried away with them. So we have a whole day of anxiety versus a moment. How do we work on that? Well, I think at the you know at the philosophical basis of that stands this idea of commitment, taking a stand, and then as I said earlier, from a very practical standpoint, taking more responsibility maybe for how we spend our time and how we engage with the moment. Because when we're really engaged with the moment, we're not anxious. And I mentioned the word task because that's how my brain works, but that's probably not that that's a bias, right? Because I'm just obsessed with tasks and projects. And I think that there's something to be gained from that, right? I think having projects on a daily basis, which is to say things we work on that require our focus will ultimately lead to more, um, I think that greater sense of focus will lead to a greater sense of calm to an extent for some of us, right? Um, but the word task is really just more so to say too, like how do we enter a flow state with our day? How do we pay attention to the particulars and the details of our daily lives, of our moment-to-moment -moment lives, such that our thinking is dragged less towards the future and less towards the past. Because for the Stoics, among others, when we live a life too stuck in the past, we're going to suffer. When we live a life too much towards the future, we're going to suffer. We should think about the past to learn from it. We should think about the future to create a good image of it and move forward towards that image. And of course, there will also be some negative thoughts from both of these things. But ultimately, to live too much out of the moment is almost like we're asking for trouble, 
right? I think that's to say almost is even an understatement. We are for them, I think. I think also it's a little bit almost, and I tell myself this, um, like disrespectful to the day, to the day that we've been given to live in this imaginary world of the future and the past when there's a day in our hands now, there's a day in front of us now that we can care for. There's a self that we can shape in the moment. Um, and there's things to be grateful for in this moment, for today. And there's things to do, right? Um, again, Marcus Aurelius telling himself, this is enough for you. Meaning right now, this moment, don't worry about the future that much. Don't worry about the past that much. Try to live today. Take a stand and commit to that. Hope this is helpful. I enjoyed this talk today. This was good for me too. Um, so thank you. Thank you for listening. And uh, I'll talk to you soon.